Amen, if you will. Go to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and open your Bibles to chapter 45. Again, Genesis chapter 45. Uh, We'll begin our reading there in verse 4. We'll be reading through uh, verse 15 here in just a moment. Again, Genesis 45, beginning in verse 4. Uh, We began quite a project uh, this coming year, uh, closing out the year 23 and moving forward into the year uh, 2024 uh, with the plan uh, over the course of this next year and beyond into 2025, uh, we are going to preach through the entirety of the Bible. Now, just a bit of good news for you as we start here today. Uh, Those of you that are old enough to remember a watch night service, uh, you will get out of here tonight or today before midnight, okay? Uh, We're not going to ring in the new year here at uh, in this building at North Clay. But we are going to preach a single sermon from each one of the 66 books of the Bible uh, in the next uh, 66 Sundays. And uh, I'm intrigued and I'm excited, uh, and I'm a bit overwhelmed about the, the task that uh, I have uh, uh, called upon us uh, to, to undertake. And this idea is not unique to me. It's not original to me. Uh, I first ran across it many, many years ago when I uh, was listening to Moody Radio out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. At that time, they had a 50,000-watt tower on Lookout Mountain, and I could pick it up in my home in Somerville, Georgia. And the southernmost extent of my travels when I was in business was typically Anniston, Alabama. And so I could listen to Moody Radio uh, every mile of the drive. And it was there uh, that I became enamored uh, with uh, John MacArthur and Steve Brown and Tony Evans and David Jeremiah and others. And by the time Uh, I went to seminary, Uh, I was very well prepared, at least theologically, and I was uh, quite impressed uh, with those uh, giants of the church and giants of the pulpit. And uh, one of those pastors, one of those preachers, uh, was a man by the name of Chuck Swindoll. Uh, I imagine Dr. Swindoll is in his mid-90s by now. And while I'm much more closely akin in theology and philosophy of preaching to John MacArthur, I have always wished that I could capture the style, the persona of Chuck Swindoll. Uh, I just loved the way he came across, okay? And I've never been able to capture it. I, I come across very heavy, very sober, uh, all that kind of thing, and... Uh, It is what it is, you know. But um, he did a sermon series many years ago and followed up with uh, some book studies and so forth called Route 66. Those of you that come on Wednesday night have seen the heading on the outlines. Uh, A walk through the Bible. Uh, I guess I plagiarized that because that came from Chuck Swindoll. And do any of you recognize the significance, the double significance of Route 66. Uh, 
of course, there are 66 books in the Bible. And there's also an old federal highway that runs east to west from Chicago, Illinois, uh, to Southern California, that is Route 66. It gained a certain kind of notoriety in the John Steinbeck novel, The Grapes of Wrath. If you haven't read The Grapes of Wrath, maybe you've seen the various movie versions. But uh, they go from the Dust Bowls of Oklahoma to California on Route 66. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, because I know who you'd be anyway. But there was also a television show in the early 1960s, I see a few head nods, entitled Route 66. And it was about a pair of young men that traveled uh, from Chicago to California, and each week uh, they would pop up in a small town, and there would be a story uh, to tell from that small town. And so very much like those young travelers in that television show now uh, 60 plus years ago, we're going to traverse uh, the entirety of the Bible. Uh, we're going to stop uh, at each book, and we're going to take a look uh, at each book of the Bible. And so I pray that uh, you will follow along, that, that you will not be overwhelmed, that I'm going to give you some tools to help you understand uh, the, the, the hows and the whys and the therefores of why I want uh, to do this. And so let's begin uh, Route 66 uh, here this morning. Uh, let's look at the story of Joseph, the slave who reigned, and we'll read there beginning in verse 4 of chapter 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land in these two years, and there are at yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all of his house, a ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now close your eyes and see the eyes of my brother Benjamin, and, and now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is, it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word as we pause to 
say goodbye to 2023. We thank you for your providence. Uh, Lord, whether it produced laughter or tears or some combination thereof, we are thankful that you have brought us through, that you have been our good shepherd, and you have led us indeed through this valley of the shadow of the valley of death. Lord, I pray for your guidance, for your power in the days to come, that we would know the joy of your salvation, that we would know uh, the, the splendor of your grace. Bless us as we study here today. Give us uh, receptive uh, minds. Give us the ears to hear. Give us uh, the hearts to receive for the sake of obedience. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll remind you uh, once again uh, that tomorrow morning, January 1st, the devotion that will pop up will be from Genesis chapter 1, and it will go through, I believe, verse 3, maybe verse 4. Chapters. Three. Okay. We're doing three chapters in the book of Genesis. And you will have a bit of a survey of those three chapters, and you can use it for your daily Bible reading guide. If you read three chapters a day in your Bible, you will cover every book of the Bible, every verse of the Bible in the course of a year. I believe it works out to about three and a quarter. So some days we do three, some days four. I think even there may be a five in there. But I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to be with us when we start back our Wednesday night Bible study and that we will be following kind of that same format, a book, a night. And so I, I want you to get this big and beautiful picture of the God who has revealed himself clearly and yet progressively from the book of uh, Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And we can say that the Bible has one author and the Bible tells one story. It tells the story of God's redemption through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I made a commitment to do uh, when I came to what was then Crest was to preach the Word, that, that I would determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that I would proclaim the Word of God without compromise, that, that my uh, most energetic and devoted endeavor would be to rightly divide this Word of truth, to, to tell you the truth week in and week out. And it is the, the only thing that I've been given that will make an eternal difference in your life. For many of you, you've been here the entire time. Some of you for just a, a longer time. But we've been together for a while, and we have walked through difficult days together. And probably quite a few of you have had me say to you, I wish I could fix that for you whether it was your own health crisis, uh, the health crisis of a loved one, or other types of calamities that come to you, how I wish I could just step in and, in a way that's far beyond me, fix the problem. And far too often, I can't. Uh, I can be with you in it, but I can't fix it for you. But the thing that God has given me 
by which I can make the greatest and the deepest and the most momentous and powerful, the most long-lasting, in fact, an eternal impact upon your life is this that we have been given in the Word of God to preach the Word, that, that, that it will not return void, and that God will utilize it in your life. He will build you up in the faith. And so we do that week in and week out. And the key as far as the pulpit and the teaching ministries of our church go, and even you as you read your Bible, is having the right understanding. There will be many that will stand in places similar to this today, and they will open the Bible, and tragically, they will lead people astray by wrongly dividing this word of truth. And so we seek to know exactly what God has said and know what he meant by what he said and how this applies to our lives. And so there, there are three things that are crucial to understanding the Bible. There are context, context, and context, okay? That's what determines the meaning of a passage of the Scripture. The first context is the context in which the events that are recorded in our Bible happen. You have to understand the, the history of the individuals, of, of the, the society in which these people uh, were living. And so uh, we're looking back to the earliest of history here in the book of Genesis. And then you need to understand something about the context in which the writer wrote it. That he is many times, and again in the case of Moses who wrote the book of Genesis, he is writing uh, somewhere around 400 years uh, after the last events of the book of Genesis, okay? And so he has a particular context. And then there's a third context. And that's your context and my context, the context in which we live. And seemingly to me, that may be the most dangerous context of all, and that and this is, this is not really new. It's been around. But there are those that appealing to something along the lines that the Word of God is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword and all of that, that because the Word of God is a living document, it will change to shape the changing contours of my life and society. That, that, that I can take and I can bend the Bible so that it fits in with what I've already decided I want to do. Some call that the reader response uh, uh, interpretation. Uh, it's simply subjectivism and or relativism. Subjectivism has to do with me personally. This is just what, I, what it means to me. How many times have you heard me say, it does not matter what it means to me, and it does not matter what it means to you. It matters what it meant to God. And it still means that very same thing. That matters how it applies. That's a different matter, okay? But we don't, we don't want to get into distorting Scripture for the sake of meeting our own agenda, okay? But understanding. And uh, I said something uh, uh, to one of our young ladies uh, this morning. If uh, uh, I call one of my grandchildren, Bam Bam. And I asked one of the young ladies, oh, wait a minute, do you even know who Bam Bam was? And, uh, and, and so, uh, y'all go Google it. I'm not going to get into it this morning. But um, when Jesus calls upon us to 
take his yoke upon us. Or Paul says, do not be yoked with unbelievers. My suspicion is, for many in our culture today, are we talking about what you get when you crack an egg? I mean, what, what is a yoke? What is the function of a yoke? So we have to take into account our modern understandings and that we're no longer an agrarian society and the idea of differing soils on which seeds are planted and the different results of those seeds has to be explained, right? And so we're aware of all of those uh, issues. And so we hope to bring all of those things to bear and help you to have a better appreciation of all that Scripture teaches us, all that it informs us of, the right use of Scripture, and then also a warning in regards to the wrong use of Scripture. Now, in coming days, I'm going to probably send you an email, and I'll mention them later. I'll have some tools that you can uh, utilize. I've already mentioned our particular uh, uh, devotional podcast, and there will be other things that may help you to get into the study. So, let us begin and look at an introduction to the book of Genesis. I've already mentioned uh, something in regards to context. There are two dates that, that concern us here. The dates of the events covered in the book of Genesis, uh, probably we're looking at 4,000 B.C. and earlier, okay? And then we're looking at the composition of the book being about 1440 through about 1405 B.C. That's the time of the wilderness wanderings of Moses, okay? And so, just a kind of a rough timeline, just to give you some, some dates, just to kind of form a framework for you. Creation prior to 4000 B.C., I'm going to throw out five to 6000 B.C., and You've heard me say this, and I don't want to get too caught up in it. I am a young earth creationist, okay? Now, uh, they're, they're, they're godly people that, that believe that they can reconcile the biblical text with creation that's billions and billions and billions of years old. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not Christians, but, but they, they certainly do great damage to uh, the issues of sin and death, and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because basically, you have death entering into our realm before the rebellion of Adam. And sin and death go together. They're evil twins. And there are multiple problems with this older earth theory of creation. And I can tell you, and while I, I do not claim to be a Hebrew scholar, God, through Moses, had no intentionality of communicating to the people who would read this Bible that his creation is billions of years old, okay? That's just not what's going on in the text. I can say that with great confidence. And so, again, we're looking at uh, creation prior to 4,000 B.C. So uh, creation beginning 5, 6,000 B.C. Abraham uh, comes on the scene, is called by God to leave Ur of the Chaldeans in 2,000 B.C. or roughly that. Uh, Joseph uh, winds up in Egypt about 1850 B.C. He dies around 1800 B.C. The Exodus is dated about 1440 B.C. David uh, comes to the throne in 1000 B.C. The kingdom divides 70 years later in 930 B.C. 
The northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 732 B.C., and then that event that we've talked so very often about, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., but it began in 609 B.C., and then this return of, ex of the exiles began in 539 B.C. Now, I'm not going to give you a test over the dates. I'm just saying sometimes that just helps you a little bit just to see what we're talking about here. So we're looking at Genesis covering for us about 2,600 years of, of time, all right? And so Moses wrote Genesis along with the other of the first five books of the Bible. We call that the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, the books of Moses, the books of the law. And as we say, of all 66 books, they are God-breathed. The writers wrote as they were carried along by God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, they are inerrant, they are inspired, they are infallible, they're sufficient to accomplish in our lives, in the life of the church, the work that God would desire to accomplish. So what is the unique purpose of the book of Genesis? Why, why do we have it in our, in our Bibles? Well, it tells us about our origin, about the origin of of everything, and it presupposes a God who exists outside of this creation. He's other than, he's outside of, and he is the creator of everything that is. So it tells us how creation came to be, again, in a sense, why there is something rather than nothing. God is the explanation for all things. And so it tells us about the origins of humanity, and then really, and it seems kind of maybe um, relevant to our time today. What about this business of the descendants of Abraham, these Hebrews, these Jews, these Israelites, and their, their claim to a particular parcel of land in that Mediterranean basin? What's going on with that claim there? And so we see that. And so in Genesis, we have the very uh, foundation of the gospel. Apart from the book of Genesis, the gospel makes no sense. It's just suspended there in midair. If there is no original rebellion in the first man, Adam, then there is no need for a Savior who hangs on the cross for the sake of our salvation from our sins. So it is foundational. And in Genesis, we can begin to find the answers for these great questions. Where am I from? The question of origin. The question of purpose, why am I here? The meaning of life, does anything really matter? Where am I going when I die? This question of destiny, the, the questions related to value and virtue. virtue. Is there really a distinction between good and evil? And again, we see in Genesis that there really is. We also find the explanation. And whatever worldview that you adopt, if you come at it from some false religion or, or just pagan, atheistic, philosophical system, you have to come up with some kind of uh, reasonable and sane and logical and uh, uh, comprehensible and comprehensive explanation. Why is it that life is so difficult? Why is there so much pain and suffering? Whether it's that which comes to me personally, 
Or why anytime I turn on the news or pick up a newspaper, I hear accounts of great atrocities. I hear accounts of great sickness and suffering and sorrow and sadness. Why is it that way? And as we have stated and teased out so many times before, in Genesis chapter 3, in the narrative that describes how sin entered our realm along with death, the effect of the fall or the effect of the curse resulting uh, from the fall, the difficulties that we experience economically, it's tough to make a living. Relationally, it's hard to maintain relationships. You know, whether it's in business, whether it's in the family, whether it's in the church, whether it's in society, you have to intentionally work at right relationships. And then physically. This is the last day of the year. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Joey, don't get up and dance. I know you're a Steve Miller man, so yeah. But it does. And it reminds me that the sand is indeed passing through the hourglass of my life. And you can despair over that or you can look at it biblically. That God has a purpose for me being here and he'll have a purpose when he chooses to take me home. And I am to live in joyful expectation of that which he has for me. Now, let's look. I want to talk a minute about the structure and outline of the book. And I always, I'm a big outline guy. Now, some of you know this. I'm a fan of the popular contemporary author, John Grisham. And uh, I, I just, his books just really kind of fit my brain. This last one isn't that good. I'll just tell you that before you go by it. But anyway, it wasn't his best. But in listening to him talk about his writing, it's funny how different writers approach their craft. But he's a big outliner. You got to know where the story's going before you write the first word. And I thought, yeah, I, li I like that. That's, that's... And an outline is not magical. It is just something. When I'm handling a big amount of material, like the book of Genesis, I need some points along the way that help me break it down so my little bitty brain can get around those big old, big old sections of the Bible. It just, I just find it helpful. And so if you... Uh, uh, want to outline the book of Genesis, there's a real simple one. And, and sometimes on Wednesday night, you'll hear me say that I, I worked real hard to break the book down into three points or four points or five points for simplicity. There are many ways to outline the books of the Bible. But Genesis can be divided into two sections. The first 11 chapters, 1 through 11, from creation to Abraham. And then from chapter 12 through chapter 50, from Abraham to Joseph, okay? Isn't that simple? Y'all can remember that? I'm going to ask you next week, okay? And I'm going to make you go home if you don't know the answer. I'm kidding. Now, we can, go, we can develop it a little more if we would like. We could outline it like this. We could have creation in chapters 1 and 2, rebellion and curse in chapter 3, banishment from the garden in 4 and 5, the judgment, the far-reaching implications of this judgment in chapter 6 through 11. Then we can pick up with the story of Abraham in chapter 12. And that's the rest of the book. Abraham and his descendants. Now, if you want to subdivide that, you've got Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay? And so those are, that's just real simple ways 
if you're thinking about the book of Genesis, that you can kind of get some milepost to help your brain uh, comprehend this. And so we want to think as we're going through the books about the gospel. The gospel foreseen, foreshadowed, predicted, promised. And then in the New Testament, we see the gospel fulfilled. And so where do we first see the gospel in the book of Genesis? Y'all know the answer to that. You better. You better. Genesis 3.15. The serpent crushing. It's not time to go home, so don't, don't worry about it. I heard it. The serpent crushing seed of the woman. First glimpse of the gospel right, right there. And so uh, we, we have uh, the, the, the seed of the woman. We have the ark that Peter refers to as, as something of a type of the church. So we see that as a symbol of, of the gospel of salvation. We see the promise to Abraham, you will be a blessing, and in you all the nations will be blessed. We see the ram at Abraham's altar where it is noted that God will provide a lamb. Yeah. Y'all got it, didn't you? You got it right there. Oh, what a great picture of the substitutionary work. One favored son was spared, but it anticipated the favored son who would be slain at the cross of Calvary for my sins and for yours. And so we see that. We, we're going to see in a, a moment that Judah's intercession and offer to be a substitute foreshadows the great lion of the tribe of Judah and his substitute for his people. We see Jacob's prophecy regarding Judah, where the scepter shall not depart from Judah. We see the gospel in the whole account of Joseph's death and burial and resurrection. So all of those glimpses and others, okay, the gospel promised foreseen in the book of Genesis. You also, if you're, if you're thinking about still about outline, that phrase, toledote. These are the generations of. There's 11 of them. And you can divide the book of Genesis in that way. Now, we need to think, and I tried to introduce this when I did those three sermons on the genealogies, the concept of cursing and blessing. And you see this all through the, the narrative of God mitigating the effects of the curse to those to whom he chooses to extend blessing, okay? And, and so in creation, we have the creation blessing of progeny, descendants, be fruitful, multiply, prosperity, exercise power and rule and subdue, of property, of place and protection, they're in the garden. We have, now this is my made-up word for this week, So because I'm doing peas, okay? Perenniality. What's a perennial flat plant? Keeps coming back, doesn't it? Perenniality. In other words, they had the blessing of life without mortality under the creation ordinance, the creation blessings. And then the blessing of a personal relationship with God. So five-fold blessing there. And in the curse... The effects of the fall, the pronouncement by God of this is what you have lost. 
They're now estranged from God. They no longer have this personal, intimate relationship. They are subject to mortality. They no longer have perenniality. They are homeless and insecure. They no longer have property. They no longer have a place in which uh, they may relate appropriately uh, to, to God. The ground is cursed. There's frustrating labor versus the productive labor under the prosperity of the promise of creation. And then that that we keep coming back to. They have pain in childbearing versus the be fruitful and multiply versus the great blessing that come through children. And so all of these we'll see played out in multiple ways and multiple times throughout the book. And it teaches us about living under the effects of the curse. And again, we see that in the original covenant or the covenant made with Abraham, we see something of God mitigating the curse. I am going to bless you. And when he starts detailing how I can, I'm going to bless you, you will see, you see how it is that God reverses. God mitigates this curse. But the one that never gets reversed is what? In all the covenants is death. We still are subject to death until that gr last great enemy is destroyed, that being death itself at the return of Christ. So, now let's look at this story of Joseph because I see in him a glimpse in the entirety of his life. It is a portrayal of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be sure now, Joseph is not Jesus. He, he's, he's not a, a theophany, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm not there. But, but he does portray in many kinds of ways. Now, you remember the big word I gave you last week? Light motif. One word, light motif. And, and all I'm saying is that God in his providence and God through the work of inspiration in the hearts and minds of those who wrote down those which God providentially, by the power of his own hand, brought to be, he placed certain themes within the course of history, within the lives of certain individuals, that would in some way suggest to us this gospel work of the Son of God. And so when we see these patterns or these themes or these characters, a light bulb should go off in our, in our head that this is saying something big. It may be something negative, it may be something positive, and it may vary from context to context. Is going to Egypt a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay? So, we see these things over and over and over. So, in Joseph, in the passage that Brad read, he is the beloved son. He Now, I, we're not going to get into, you know, uh, dysfunctional families or anything like that. That's not the point of the story. Uh, but there were some problems. Did I say anything about pain and childbearing? I think I did. Okay. They're living under the curse, and there's a problem. But again, Joseph is the beloved son. He's uniquely chosen. And guess what? Now, I've, I use the phrase when we talk about Jesus, Jesus uniquely conceived, one of a, time, one of a kind type of, of, of conceiving of Jesus by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit, okay? And, and saying unique isn't even powerful enough. But you understand what I'm saying? He is divinely, supernaturally conceived, okay? Well, Joseph has an unusual 
conception. And that his mother is barren until God opens her wombs. There is a, a theme, a motif, an activity that reminds us going forward that when we see barrenness, something's about to happen. Something's about to be revealed by God. So we see Joseph, the beloved son. We see Joseph, the one who's despised and rejected. And we see, again, this relational curse, this pain in childbearing working its way out in the life of that family. We've already seen it in Cain and Abel. We've seen it in Isaac and Ishmael. We saw it in Jacob and Esau, okay, all through. And so Joseph, as the one who shall deliver, in fact, he delivers because of the hatred of his brothers. Does that remind you of anybody you know? Nod your head, please. Jesus, according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you wicked men, including you evil men of Israel, you brethren, you put him on the cross, but that which God, which you meant for evil, God meant for good. Yeah. Yeah. That which God would accomplish was accomplished through the evil of those who hated the beloved son. So Joseph is despised and rejected. Joseph while not perfectly righteous, that's not, that, that's not possible, but he is the righteous one. Does anybody know what's in G Genesis chapter 38 and what follows in chapter 39? I didn't think you did. I'm kidding. I was being smug. I'm sorry. Genesis 38 interrupts Joseph's story to tell us about Judas and his sordid encounter with his daughter-in-law and his lack of integrity. Chapter 39 tells us about Joseph being in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife having designs upon Joseph. And yet Joseph acted righteously when Judah did not. Now here's a little hint. Judah's going to change in the next 12 chapters or next 11 chapters, whatever it is. You're going to see a change in Judah. He's no longer the opportunist that he once was, and he's willing to lay down his life for his brother Joseph. But Joseph acted with integrity. Here, here's an interesting thing, and I think, I think it plays out. As a testimony to their deceit, the brothers bring a bloody coat back to their father, showing him that and telling the story, Joseph is dead because animals devoured him. Potiphar's wife grabs his garment and holds on to it to display to Potiphar and again to advance another lie that Joseph did something that he did not do, the garment. Does it go all the way forward to those gathered at the cross and taking Jesus' possessions, even his garment, and taking it from him and that being again a testimony to him? at least in the fulfillment of Scripture. I don't know. Maybe you could work with that some. Just an interesting parallel. Joseph, the righteous one. Joseph, the wise one. Jesus is the ultimate, the fulfillment, the incarnate wisdom of God. Joseph isn't, but he act, acted wisely. He managed Potiphar's house. He managed the jail. He interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. He interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. He rose to power. 
if you will, real quickly, go back to chapter 41 for just a moment. Chapter 41, verse 57. God promised to Abraham in chapter 12, in you or through you shall all families of the earth be blessed. In you or through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. What does it say of Joseph here in chapter 41 and verse 57? Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. You think Joseph was a blessing to all the families of the earth? Now, he wasn't the ultimate blessing. And, and, and here's the thing. Go, go to verse 1 of chapter 42. Y'all are not getting excited like I am. Please get excited. Humor me. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his son, why do you look at one another? Why do you stand here and do nothing and starve to death? So, blessing to the nations, grain or bread through the personification of that blessing. Guess what happened? They took that grain and they got hungry again. Now, it was good. It was good they got the grain. It's, I'm not, but it didn't make the true bread, did it? It didn't. Make the bread that should you eat of it, you will never hunger again. Who does the blessing to all the families, and who does the one that provides bread to the nation, who does that anticipate? The one who indeed is the bread of life, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, rises to power. He, he secures Goshen for his brothers. That's kind of an interesting thing. He, he kind of plays Pharaoh there. Hey, you Y'all don't like shepherds down here in Egypt. We'll just give them Goshen. Oh, that happens to be the best land in all the, all the nation. And they raise their uh, livestock there. And so, Joseph is wise in that he tests his brother. And that's, I want you to see this little bit of, of, of transition here. When they come and they request bread, Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. He wants to see what kind of men they become. Okay, he, wants to, he wants to reveal their character. Are they the still, still scheming, scandalous brothers that they were 20 years prior? Or has something happened in their lives by which they are changed? And so we see in chapter 43... And verse 7, Judah says to his father, yes, we must take Benjamin back and I will be the pledge for safety. I will be the substitute. If something happens to this boy, I will stand good for it. You take my life versus uh, anyone else's, but I will stand good for this. Far different than the one that says, eh, just sit, let's sell him. Let's, let's sell Joseph. But he's willing to, to stand good. And so uh, the money for the original purchase of grain is sent back with them, and guess what they do? They bring it back. They bring the money back. Wow. Then, chapter 43, verse 34. I believe it's a test. I believe it's a testimony of Joseph's love for, for Benjamin. He gives him a five times portion at the meal, but it was also a test. Are these brothers going to be jealous of the one who is favored? Or is there going to be more animosity uh, out 
you know, out, work its way out there. And so when he places the cup in Benjamin's sack and they're chased down and they're caught with the cup, what do we see Judah doing? Look at chapter 44 and verse 33. As it all plays out, what does Judah do? How has he changed? How is the one that was such a, such a hard heart that they could put Joseph in the pit, they could hear his cries, his pleas for mercy, and they sat down and ate while their brother cried in the pit? And now he's willing to go back and stand before the man who has the power of life and death in his hands. And he says to Joseph, now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. Don't punish him. Punish me. Take me as a substitute. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. When previously, 20 years earlier, he did not care. Here's this bloody road. I guess, see if it's that boy of yours. You know, something happened. I hate it. Now, take me. I will suffer in his place. Who does that look forward to? It's interesting that it's Judah here. The scoundrel Judah that God has worked marvelously in by his grace. And here in chapter 45, we see, uh, again, I hear people talk about reveal parties, the great reveal. The great reveal. I am Joseph. Now, I don't want to go so far as to prefigure the words from the burning bush and the I am statements of John, but it is interesting. I am Joseph. I'm Joseph. And, and he, he has this insight. Look there in verse 4. Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. Now, I'm going to tell you how Tim Evans would have handled this. It would not have been a pretty sight. And Joseph, foreshadowing the mercy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the ultimate blessing to the nations. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He saw the big picture. He saw the purpose. In all the nights of anguish, in all the tears, in all, all of the despair over his situation, he came to see the most robust and profound of all confessions of theology, that God had a purpose in it all. And it was me he sent here to be your Savior. Qual very qualified, okay? But he sent me here to save you. And I couldn't help but think, Joseph went ahead. He had prepared for their arrival. And what did Jesus say to those disciples on that last night? I'm about to go away. I'm going to depart. But I go to prepare a place for you. Joseph had gone ahead by God's providence, and he had prepared a place for the deliverance, for the salvation of his brothers. He explains the famine to them, and then verse 7, 
and God sent me before you to preserve you for, your, for, for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, but God, but God. Have y'all ever heard that phrase before? But God. But God was at work. Now, there's a lot of theology there, and I don't, we don't, don't have time to get into it. But again, they meant evil, as, we, as, as Joseph shall explain to them. But God worked it for good. And so we see Joseph as the one who entrusted himself to God. That, that God, he recognized God had sent him there to pre- preserve life. And so Joseph gives us a, a really a dynamic and a beautiful portrait of the one who shall come after him, the one who will be the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who will provide bread that those who eat it shall never hunger again. They shall dwell in a land far better than Goshen, and they shall live under the rule of one far far more powerful and far more gracious than even Joseph himself. So, final words. We've covered from 4,000, pre-4,000 B.C. to about 1,800, we see the gospel as a promise in the various types and shadows of the book of Genesis. Now, it's real tempting, and I'm going to succumb to it a little. What about the moral example of Joseph? Now, I know all of us reform types. Oh, no, 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 no. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel, and yes, it is. But Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, take your yoke upon me. And so we see in Joseph the very power of the gospel at work in him, that that in some sense that before the new covenant came to be, the law was on his heart. How can I do such a wrong against my God by taking my master's wife? He understood the great things of God even long before God put them in writing. And so... In Joseph's story, we see a man, and this is not original to me, but he got his Ph.D. in theology in the school of suffering. Okay? He sure did. And he he triumphed over the bitterness of his life. And we see that in the bitterness of the cross, among Jesus' last words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We find that type of refrain on the lips of this man Joseph. And as his life closes out in chapter 50, his final request, and it, I don't know, this is something about this. It just, it just grabs me. It just grabs me. We have the promises made to Abraham. This land shall be yours. He, God told Abraham, now, now your, your descendants are going to spend 400 years in Egypt. But they're going to come back. And just like his grandfather, great-grandfather before him, Joseph believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. But his faith worked. And he said, I believe the promises of God, that they are so trustworthy, that indeed, yes, we are going to grow into a great nation in this land of Egypt, but there's going to be a day that God is going to redeem that great nation. There's going to be an exodus, and we're going to go to the land that God has promised us. And here's what I want you to do. When you go, take me with you. 
that, that I believe the promises of God, that that land is ours. And again, foreshadowing, Israel is not the ultimate. The land of Palestine is not the ultimate. But the ultimate is the place that our Lord and Savior, the Jesus, Jesus Christ, has gone to prepare for us. And there he waits for us. So Joseph says, by faith, take me with you. As his father Abraham was, he was looking forward to a city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. And so, in this life of Joseph, we can see a Savior who died, he was buried, he was raised, he ascended to rule and reign and intercede to deliver his brothers. That is, I believe, one of many places that we see the gospel according to the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for your truth. Father, as we begin a new year, as we enter in to this very unique way of preaching your word, I pray that with great diligence and great consistency, great passion, that we will rightly divide and rightly communicate your word. Uh, Father, may in all of this, the details are important, and it would be wrong to say don't let us get bogged down in the details. We, the details are important. But let us see our Savior as the one who indeed is holy, 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 the one who is high and lifted up because, again, he came and he died and he was buried and he was raised. He, was, he now rules and reigns and intercedes. He has saved us, his people. And may we see that truth over and over again as we travel this marvelous route, Route 66. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.